Welcome, everybody, to Uncommon Deeds. I am Tom Corbett. He is Justin St. Louis, and this is also episode 100. Yeah. I'm getting over a cold, and God, my voice sounds horrendous in my own ears, so I'm assuming it's worse for everyone else. Unless you're Unless you're into the deep, raspy. Yeah. Sickness. Welcome to Uncommon Deeds. Yeah. Episode 100. And we're going to keep this fairly short and sweet as we have about four hours of audio for your ear holes this week. Yeah. Our second real two-parter. And I know this one was a pretty important one, Justin, for you to get done and get recorded and put out into the atmosphere. Well, I've been asking the damn guy for a year about it. Um, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, Mike Bruno has done a ton of racing, um, dirt and asphalt and ACT and Bush North and modifieds and all the things. Um, and then owns a racetrack. Um, but he's also one of my best friends and, was my boss for 10 years and yeah, it was super important for me to, to get this one done. Um, and I'm really glad that we didn't talk about me very much. <laughs> Spoiler alert there. Yeah, and I think most of the times it was picking on you, yeah, which is fine. Um, I think we got into the origin story of how I ended up working for him, but there wasn't much else. And, and I was grateful that he told his story uh, stories. Cause there's a lot of them. Um, there's, you know, personal family tragedy and hard times and great times and great stories from the road. And he just goes through the whole thing. And, um, it was, yeah, it, this is, this is, I mean, kind of an all timer. Um, and I think that just about everybody who listens to the show has seen him race or has been to devil's bowl to see him in action. So it, yeah, it's one that kind of checks all the boxes, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, he was very open about everything, and I think we hit on most everything that someone tuning in would want to hear about. Take that yeah. for what you will. Yeah. Um. So very proud of that. And buckle in for a good about three and a half hours. Of, three and a half hours of, of us trying to control my dog under the table as we recorded <laughs> Okay. Yeah. You'll hear him, I'm sure, in the background. Yeah, this one was an at person at Justin's house. Yeah. Which are always fun, and we don't get to do them as much, and it'd probably be more convenient if we lived closer to each other. 
right. than, you know, an hour away. But it is what it is. I I thought of everything except the dog when we made the plan to record here. I was like, this is going to be cake. And then I realized Ferguson. Yeah. And we got about two questions in and I realized, oh, this is not. We had all kind of made plans based on our normal time frames, including your family returning home. Yeah. I think uh, Mike was supposed to be in Rutland at about five o'clock. Yeah. I was supposed to be back here by about five o'clock. And I think we finished recording whatever it was about five o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I mean, it was all good and and worthy content. It's just it went a long time, and that's why it's broken up into two shows this week. Um, today, which is Tuesday, if you're listening on the first day, and then Thursday coming if you're if you're waiting for that. Um, so there's that, and we've also got story time this week because um, it's a story time episode and. Um, general, I love you is back and forth because it's episode 100 and we've done a great job together and there's that. Yeah. We're going to pretty much wrap it up here in a second and go right into story time, but can't do that without first thanking all you guys who have helped us get through a hundred episodes. Yeah. Who have supported, whether it be simply liking our Facebook page or buying our merch, coming to see us when we were live can't thank you enough uh, supporting our other stuff. A lot of you appreciate it. Jumping from this podcast, giving a, a no fouls a try or the new sports order a try, checking out Sterling's writing. Can't thank you guys enough for the support and our sponsors who I promise you there's a good chance we would not be a hundred episodes in if it weren't for all the people who have helped us throughout this process, especially, you know, Barry Tile, who was on very early and continues to stay on Bushies on its second straight year with us at this point. Yep. Pro Heat was on early. Now they're back with story time. Man. And Seti Brothers, custom vinyl lettering, LaCares. Yep. After Dark, uh, Elite Designs. Are we forgetting? We're probably forgetting. If we forgot you, send us a check and we'll get you back going. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But no, thank you to everybody for uh, for 100 episodes. And you know what, buddy? Thank you to you. And I know that we've said this many times, but... Um, yeah, we're like, you know, uh, th- this was the thing that we needed to do because we couldn't work together anymore. <laughs> so we get to spend time together either in person or virtually and mostly virtually. But, yeah. uh, and we're, we're, you know, we're, this is fun. Without getting sappy because oh. it's been a just emotional few weeks at this household. Um, yeah, we have gotten so much closer and yeah i mean you were always i considered a very good friend but now i you know you're one of my best friends and oh dude 
we could vent about stuff like we did before we hit record today mm-hmm. that I don't tell pretty much anybody else outside of my family. And I, uh, I appreciate you, buddy. Hell yeah. Yep. Miss the long car rides to Lee or airborne or wherever the hell, but this is a much better replacement, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, I did look through the list here and it's the guys were missing uh, through the couple of years here, Goss cars, Monaco racing, of course, which was with the milk bowl and um, VT fire and Yates auto body, Donnie Yates. Um, so thanks to everybody who's, who's signed on board and you, you did mention merch and I want to keep this brief, but this week we're doing the final order for the beaver, beaver dragon stuff. We also have no fouls merch available. Um, so hit us up for those things. Um, yeah, we're going to do the final run of Beaver Dragon stuff, and I believe we're going to do an online store. So, uh, watch for that. Hopefully, hopefully it's by the end, by Friday, I'd say at the latest, but, um, yeah. Right on. Right on. Like I said, check out Barry Tile. Uh, we're not going to do a giant spiel today, but come on, guys. They know what they're doing. Believe it or not. And I choose to believe it. Spring is coming soon. Mm. Spring cleaning, spring renovations. Mm-hmm. Barry Tiles got what you need. Get yourself a floor. Get yourself a countertop, a shower, all the things you need. Yeah. yeah. And just because winter is coming to an end does not mean that you can forget about all your heater issues you might have had all winter. In fact, it's probably a great time to schedule some time for Pro Heat to come out and get you all set so you're not rushing to do it a week before it's 10 below next fall. You got that right. Um, yeah, get it. Yeah, get it taken care of now. There's absolutely no better time to do it than now. And also, in that same vein, call Ben Bushy and get yourself a generator, get yourself lined up to have a, a home standby generator ready to go. Uh, the storms are stupid out here in the summertime where I live, where it's wide open and flat. We lose power all the time because it's Vermont. And then the winter, you know, this winter sucked and knocked power out a few times for some people. It was for almost a week. Um, get yourself out of that bind, get yourself a $500 discount, if you order between now and Memorial day and thanks to all our sponsors, man, Barry, Barry tile, Morrison Clark, pro heat, Bushy's generator sales and service. And we got room for more uncommon media VT at gmail.com. Nice. But now we will roll right in to story time with Justin St. Louis. Storytime is back this week, presented by our friends at Pro Heat in East Montpelier, Vermont. Listen, there was a division at Thunder Road and Airborne in the first half of the 1990s that was wildly entertaining, yet it never really got off the ground, never had a true identity, and never had a chance of survival. The cars were as long as a city block. They had underpowered and emissions-choked energy crisis-era V8 engines. They probably weighed 4,000 pounds, and they absolutely did not handle. I repeat, did not It was a recipe for purposeful disaster, and that's exactly how it turned out. Over a period of four years plus one race, the rules changed four times, and the name changed four times. But the basic cars and many of the drivers were the same throughout. Today, I 
refer to them as the land yachts, but I have loved them by any and every other name. And the sounds of their tires moaning for mercy from such cruel punishment in the corners will forever live in my brain. And I know you know that sound, too, with those horrible retreads mounted on aftermarket white spoke wheels carrying the load of a four-door Chevy Caprice all bound up into turn one. You could smell the smoke rolling. You could see the sidewall of the tire earning a year's worth of abuse in 10 seconds. And you could hear that all the way around the corner. God, for me at eight years old, it was absolutely fantastic. The class was created out of the leftovers of Thunder Roads Enduro in the fall of 1990 with a one-off race. A throng of used-up junk, at least 30 cars strong, ran Enduro-style around 20 or 25 laps, and the scorers were so baffled that it was officially declared a tie between Mike Denton, who was said to have led a bunch of laps, but who really knows, and likely the rightful winner, or at least the guy who was much faster, a teenager by the name of Roger Lange. It wasn't even close. That was like six car lengths. Uh, Certainly nothing that could even have been confused as a tie. Anyway, it was all for the show, and everyone went to Jockey Hollow happy afterward. Promoter Tom Curley promised a weekly division for 1991, and he delivered with the Napa Legend class, named after a battery sold by the Napa Auto Parts retail chain, which served as the division sponsor. Roll cages were required, and the races were run at the end of each night, still under the wild, feature-only, caution-free, enduro-style format. The stars were Milton's Benoit brothers, Dan Jr. and Steve, along with Sweet Larry Sweetser and the Nuclear Grape Number 22, and Steve Dodge, Rob Clark, Greg Paye, uh, Catamount Stadium veteran Chicky Bissett, uh, the popular Randy Campbell, whose spina bifida condition forced him to race with hand controls, and my childhood mentor, the Birdman, John Adams. Randy Blake, Mike Rollins, Rick Guerin, Jay Parentoni, John Massetti, Randy Gagne, the crowdfunded number 62 uh, bank dweller car of Nelson Craig, and even Enduro legend Dipstick Don Tefani would also emerge as big players. The Napa legend package lasted just that one year. At Thunder Road, Barry's own Randy Blake won the championship, and Milton's Greg Paye took the title at Airborne. For 1992, a big shift in divisional alignment at the two tracks took place on both sides of Lake Champlain. The Flying Tigers became the late models, the V8 street stocks became the Tigers, and the Napa Legends became the new street stocks. Actual racing rules were put in place for the new street stocks, and things were quite a bit more refined and racy, but it wasn't unusual to see a 116-inch wheelbase Caprice or two running with the now-accepted Monte Carlos and Thunderbirds. My man John Adams led the win column at Thunder Road with four victories, but it was Randy Blake repeating as king of the road. Newcomer Mike Boucher of Franklin, Vermont, took four wins over at Airborne, and the championship went to Mineville, New York rookie David Rotella. The next change came in 1993, when the four-cylinder street stocks were created, and the phase-out of our beloved land yachts was already set into motion. The V8s were once again elevated to Flying Tiger B status, since really they weren't much different than the regular Tigers anyway. And as car counts began to dip significantly, the non-qualifiers from the A Tigers were lumped in with the B cars at the end of the night. The Bank Dweller Special, which was named after the Bud Hill Turn 4 faithful who collected cans from the Hillside Bank to cash in and put toward the car, That car went to victory lane four times at Thunder Road with Nelson Craig at the wheel. Tiger A driver Bonsai Billy Barkham ended up in the B a bunch of times and also won a pair of races, as did A drivers Ricky Dennis and, oh yeah, John Adams. Hometown racer and future Bucktona legend Mike Rollins won his first championship. Over at Airborne, it was an absolute bloodbath. Car counts were about the same as Thunder Road, 10 to 18, depending on the night. But only two drivers won features all year. I repeat, two drivers won features all year. Mr. Wonderful, Dan Benoit, won a staggering 14 times in 19 races. And local guy Toby Ebersol won the other five. Interestingly, they both each won a feature at Thunder Road, too. 
But that was it for Airborne, and the B-Class was cut permanently. The 1994 season was basically the same thing for Thunder Road, except the name was changed again, this time to the much more appealing, or maybe appalling, Killer B moniker. Mike Rollins won a second title, and Randy Campbell won a feature on Milkpole Weekend, which was over-the-moon popular. That was also the year when the weekly TNN television show The Exciting World of Speed and Beauty came to Thunder Road, and the wreck that gave my man Mr. Adams his Birdman nickname was played for all the world to see. He got punted in the wall, flew off the top of turn one, crawled out of his car, ran up the track, and gave a resounding double middle finger salute to his offender, the incomparable Dan Marcotte. Oh, Moody had a field day with that one. But the division was basically dead. Nearly half of the B races in 94 were won by A cars, which was enough for Tom Curley to pull the plug at the end of the year. The land yachts were gone completely in 1995, which is understandable. But man, oh man, how they hammered when they were around. Big junky cars, big thundering wrecks, and lots of fun. There's nothing left like it today. This edition of Storytime on Uncommon Deeds has been brought to you by our friends at ProHeat. We are in the dead of winter here in the north, and if you're cold at home now, or if you want to get ready for next winter, ProHeat of East Montpelier, Vermont is the only call you need to make. With 21 years in business and more than 30 years of experience in the industry, the staff at ProHeat are constantly learning and evolving and ready to tackle any and every situation in a hurry and get it right. ProHeat is a one-stop shop for sales, installation, and service of furnaces, oil tanks, gas, oil, electric, and hybrid water heaters, cold climate heat pumps, Vernice space heaters, gas and oil boilers, and more. For more information, visit ProHeat on Facebook or call the East Montpelier office at 802-479-9330 or call Michael John Massetti directly at 802-272-0964. Professional, reliable, on-time ProHeat. Now, let's meet today's guests. Episode 100 has been a long time coming, and this guest's appearance on the show has been a long time coming, and uh, it may get emotional, because uh, there's a great story here, there's several great stories here, but there's also a great, long, personal friendship and history uh, between myself and our guest, and uh, we're finally, we finally got him here. Mike Bruno is uh, guest number 100 on Uncommon Deeds. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, I'm here too, but no, Tom, Tom's no here deep too. friendship. Yeah, <laughs> big fan. Yeah, but uh, yeah, we got a lot to lot to talk about. So go ahead, Tom. So why don't we start at the beginning, like we usually do? When did uh, motorsports come into your life? Boy, uh, as long as I can remember, to be honest with you. Uh, growing up as a kid uh, in, a, in a household where uh, my mother actually raced. My father raced. Um, uncles, cousins. I was thinking about that. I can, I can remember back to about 1981 or 1982, um, sitting in the grandstands at Fonda Speedway is the first recollection that I can remember being at a racetrack. So I was around around 10 years old. 10 years old. Yeah. Your dad was John, and um, he was a great racer. You know, even before you were born, he was he was racing. I think um, at Devil's Bowl, and I don't I don't know if he raced at Fairmont, but he, he I don't think he ever raced at Fairmont. He may have went there. Yeah. Um, he actually started racing go karts in Castleton. There used to be a go kart yes, track. That's right. Uh, I believe it was near Pond Hill Ranch or somewhere along them lines. <clears throat> um, so yeah, he he was racing. You know, he raced for a long time for sure. Mm-hmm. Now, not to get off topic, but the house that you just sold that was in Castleton, your backyard was a racetrack back in the late 40s, early 50s. Do you know if he ever 
did anything there or, or went to that track at least? No, he didn't. And I, I don't know if they actually conducted regular races there in Castleton. I can't remember what the name I of I think the it track. was more of a horse track, but they had it, stock cars. It was, um, and they used it as a test track and stuff. Um, you know, as you know, um, back in the day, there was, seemed like there was racetracks in every other town, um, and probably people don't even know that uh, there was a racetrack there in Castleton. Probably some people don't, you know. So when did you start getting the urge to get behind the wheel of something? Well, boy, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of backstory to that because um, when uh, you know I first started, remember going to the races. Before that happened, um, you know, as people are familiar with, you know, Vermont, you couldn't go in the pits. You know, as a kid, when you were 16. So I actually uh, remember going to the grandstands for a long time. And then as you get older, you know, and you see your parents racing and you have there's rivalries and stuff, you get in disagreements with people at the racetrack. And and, uh, one time when I was, I want to say I was close to 16, probably 14 or 15, um, myself and a guy that helped us on the cars for a long time, Chris Irwin. we decided to sneak into the pit area down at Albany Saratoga Speedway. And um, he actually, uh, I held the fence up for him. He went under the fence and uh, he held the fence up and I went underneath the fence. We snuck into the races. And that was like one of the first times I can remember being in the pits. Um, and I was like, wow, this is cool. You, you don't realize what there is on the other side until you actually get there and you get to see it. Yeah. Um, the bad part about that was two days later, we both come down with poison ivy. Um, <laughs> there was poison ivy underneath the fence. And uh, it's an ironic story because later on in life, when I had a, an association, I'm sure we'll talk about that, with C.J. Richards, I told him that story about sneaking into the racetrack. And he said that uh, we knew that poison ivy was on that back fence. We just always left it there for years. <laughs> so it was one of them, I gotcha kind of things, you know. Yeah. Um, but as far as racing, um, once that happened, we both got 16. We started, um, Chris and I both um, started working on my father's race cars, actually. Um, you know, we were working uh, probably, honestly, long before we were 16, working on the cars, um, his late models and things like that. And then um, we were on the crew um, for C.D. Colville um, when he drove for my father around 1980. Nope, 85. Okay. 85 and 86. Um, and I do remember working on my father's car in like 84. And then um, Bob Savoy drove for my father in 1987. And we worked on the cars then as crew members, as, well, kids, you know, 16, 15, 16 <clears throat> years old. That's when we kind of got the interest to say, like, you know, my father was like, you know, do you ever be interested in doing this, you know, driving? And I'm like, you know, yeah, I'd be interested. And he's like, so before I was, he had drivers racing. So a lot of people may not know this. I actually had a three-wheeler and we went to the first time I ever raced was at Lebanon Valley Speedway on a three-wheeler. Really? Yes. 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 I didn't know that. Oh, you don't know everything. Wow. <laughs> you're probably you're probably going to learn some stuff today yeah. for sure, depending <laughs> on what you ask for questions. I've been on a three-wheeler like maybe once, and it was about as sketchy. I'm, I'm good as a small child. Well, <laughs> it's funny you say that because uh, I remember going to the track that day, and my father bought me brand-new Hoosier tires for the back of the three-wheeler back Whoa. then. Hoosier-made tires. Um, and I was I was a bigger kid. You know, I was probably at that point I weighed – 250, 275, 300 pounds, maybe. I don't know. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And um, I remember going to the first jump and hitting the first jump and ass over tea kettle I went. 
And I got to be honest with you, I may have finished that day, but that was the only time we ever went to Lebanon Valley uh, to run the three-wheeler and go racing. And after that is when he said, you know, why don't we build you something? Because he, he knew I was a bigger kid. Why don't we build you something that has some horsepower or something that you can actually race? So that's when it really came about. And I probably think I was probably, I want to say 16 when that happened. Where, yeah. Did you ever run a Devil's Bowl with that? Because CJ had nope. an off-road no. track for what, like Joey LeCare Jr. No. was there? And... Nope, no. Huh. So that was probably 1980, boy, I want to say 1988 roughly. Um, how we used to have uh, like a track in the infield at uh, Lebanon Valley. And it mm-hmm. was it was huge. I couldn't believe it when we got there and all the people that were there racing. And yeah, so that was really my first foray was in a, in a three-wheeler and and uh, oh, it went from there. Wow. So what did you guys decide to build then? Well, back then, um, you know, he had drivers. Uh, he had successful drivers and in uh, racing at the time. And he got to the point um, around 1984 um, that uh, his eyesight was getting worse. Um, and uh, he had gotten some wrecks that he probably shouldn't have got into um, on the racetrack. And I remember seeing him from the stands and, and the pits when we were helping him. Um, and we were like, you know, something's wrong here. And then he ended up getting glass. He just, he decided that, you know, he didn't want to do it anymore. So when that happened at that point, he's like, uh, you know, I got drivers racing for you. Why don't we um, build a four-cylinder car for you to race? And that was very popular um, back in the day at Devil's Bowl, yeah. um, around the you know mid '80s, I would say. I mean, I mean, guys, you know that you would know uh, Carl Murray, Freddie Little, Mike Todd Palmer. Stone, Mike Palmer, all them Timmy guys. LaDuke. Timmy LaDuke, um raced the four cylinder division. It was it was pretty cool because you know, and I think back to that now, it was a junkyard division, and I had some of the most fun um, building that car, putting that car together. Um, you know, we put it together in my father's shop. And um, I can't remember. I think it was I missed the first race because we didn't have a motor. I had somebody building us a motor, and then somebody loaned us a motor to uh, go and race. But uh, yeah, it was it was 1988 is when it was. Um, 87 I think was the fourth three wheelers, and then 1988 would have been my first year uh, actually racing uh, on the track. Mm-hmm. So you were winning almost right away with that that Pinto, right? Yeah, it was it was kind of funny because, you know, I'd always been around, you know, racing and watched and worked on cars. And I remember the first race I ran, it was at Devil's Bowl in the Pinot. Uh, I don't remember, you know, where in the sequence of the season it was. It might have been the second week, third week of the season. But I remember going out and finishing uh, second um, in the first race I was ever in. Really? Um, whether it was a heat race or a feature, I can't remember. Um, but I did finish second that first, uh, first week. But... Uh, yeah, it was um, it was it was a great time. Had a lot of fun. One race, we were I was actually racing at Albany, Saratoga, and Devil's Bowl with the Pinot back then, and um, it was it was a good experience. It really was. And, and uh, I can remember back in 1988 when we were doing that, and a name you'll recognize is uh, Danny Camara, oh, yeah. um, Dave Camara's younger brother. Um, he actually used to ride with me to the to Albany, Saratoga, uh, between me and uh, another guy, uh, Chris Irwin, to the races with the four cylinder, and it was kind of like, you know, when he first was coming around racing and stuff as well, the Camaros. And uh, I can't remember somewhere at the end of the '88 season, I remember I got uh, most improved driver or, or driver of the year. I can't remember exactly what the award was yeah. for CVRA. They had a banquet, newcomer of the year maybe or something like that. Yep. Um, CJ used to have the awards uh, over in uh, Lake George. So 
Um, that was the 88 season. And then um, we rolled on into 1989, which was actually my senior year of high school. Um, so, again, come out. Had, I finally got some sponsors um, after the first year uh, because my father was the type that you you had to work for what you got. Um, there was no there was no spoon fed. There was no. You, you used to tell me stories of how he would pay for his race cars. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, um, you know, back when he was, you know, in the late 70s, 80s, um, and, and maybe even later than that, I can remember uh, we went coon hunting um, during the uh, fall and the winter time, and he actually saved enough money up from selling hides and stuff to be able to uh, build some race cars and, and buy parts and all that kind of stuff. And that's cool. And he was that into racing, you know what I mean? And uh, that's how we were brought up. And, and, you know, we had to go to junkyard for the four-cylinder, get the fenders, do all that kind of stuff. And, and I respect starting at that level um, because it made you appreciate things the more you went on in racing. Um, you, you started at the bottom. You didn't start at the top. Nowadays, it seems like people want to start at the top. If they don't succeed, then they're they're out in two years. That's just yeah. that's how it seems, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, but 89, um, come out of the box, winning races. And uh, him and uh, his driver um, at the time, Bob Savoy, um, they actually had Magnum Engine Oils as a sponsor. Um, they had a successful run through like uh, 88 and 89 into the 89. Maybe it ended the beginning of 89 season. I can't remember. I've got I've got my notes. Bob Savoy drove it in 88 and won yep. the title at Malta. He did. That's right. And then uh, in 89, it started with Jeff Trombley. At Malta. Yeah. Yep. And Harry Peak actually drove the car at Devil's Bowl. Yep. So, as you can see, uh, being around C.D. Colville, Bob Savoy, Jeff Trombley, Harry Peak. Uh, I know Tom, some of them names don't ring a bell with him, but some of the dirt people yeah. um, will understand who them people are. And, and to watch them people and learn uh, was a great experience. Um, and then we got to the towards the end of the 89 season, and my father's like, I don't know what happened. But somewheres with, with Jeff, maybe Jeff had some conflicts or something racing at Malta. And my father's like, well, it's time for you to get in the modified. And I'm like, really? You know, and it's like, I, I guess I wasn't at the time prepared to go from a four-cylinder to a modified. Now, I'm not talking like the guys nowadays, they go from a modified into a crate sportsman car. A crate car, yeah. Uh, I'm talking a, you know, a full-blown 358 car, which was um, totally different in it was it was a cool experience. It was a humbling experience for sure. Um, you know, going from running up front and battling for wins in a four cylinder car um, to going and, and having to qualify in a modified car with six or seven hundred horsepower. Well, and you got to remember back then you were racing against guys like Jack Johnson, Bob Savoy, C.D. Colville, Donnie Ackner, uh, Hector Stratton, the Hordes, uh, all them people that were on top of their game. Yeah. Any any person could win on any given night. Um, so we ended the um, 89 year. I had There was a race down at, and I'm still trying to find this video, um, of a race in 1989 down at uh, Albany-Saratoga Speedway um, where I had led the race, was leading the race. Then Jack Johnson and myself had a back-and-forth uh, battle for like four or five laps towards the end of the race. I think there was like 10 laps to go. And then we ran out of fuel with like four or five laps to go. Uh. And uh, I ended up getting pushed off, and Jack ended up going on to win the race. But uh, it was a pretty cool uh, to end your senior year of high school going for a four-cylinder to 
uh, battling for a win with a guy like Jack Johnson um, in a race like that for sure. Jesus, yeah, that's pretty wild. Yeah, how competitive of a person are you at that point? Like you said, it's hard going from winning to not, but are you that kind of competitive where every time you're not winning, you're trying to figure out what the hell happened and you're pissed off? Um, definitely at that age, not pissed off. Um, if you knew the backstory more of the way my family was brought up and, and the way my father got to where he got in life and my mother, my father bred that he was there to win. You know what I mean? It was, he was, um, he was a driving force behind it. You know, it, uh, and it, it, it wasn't like beat you over the head type either, you know, but you just, you could sense it. You know what I mean? You knew that he was there to win races, you know what I mean? And, and he was that way. I, I can remember it being that way up to that point. So for me, it wasn't as big of a deal, but you could sense it in him that, you know, even though you're a, you're an 18 year old kid, he was working towards the next thing. He, 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 he honestly felt like I, I felt like that he thought maybe, you know, he was the one driving that car. You know what I'm saying? Like he wanted to win that bad. Um, but he never, but he never, he was never, never yelled, never, uh, there was none of that kind of stuff that I see sometimes now in racing with parents and kids. It was more, he got his hands dirty. You know what I mean? He would roll into the car let's and fix this guy. let's fix this goddamn car. Let's get you back out there. Um, he was a roll up his sleeves kind of guy. Yeah. So at that point you're still kind of playing checkers and he's playing chess. Yeah. You know, and you're, you're an 18 year old kid and you know, you're just freshly out of high school. I graduated, uh, you know, you, you have friends, you party, you have girlfriends, you, you know what I mean? You have, yeah. it's, it's, and then all of a sudden it's not a lifestyle yet. No, it's not even, not even thought of as a lifestyle. It's the, yeah, my dad always did this and it's a, and it's a cool thing to do. And, um, probably in the beginning, I'm sure he was a lot more serious. I was serious about it, but not at the level. He just come off winning a lot races, titles. He was big, he, exactly. And and you go and you go back to you know the races through the, you know from when he quit in '84 through the CD Colville and the Bob Savoy era. And honestly, even with Jeff Trombley and, and Harry Peak winning races and stuff, you know now he's with somebody that's as green as can green as can be, and it's his son. Yeah. 90, you guys go full bore, and the CVRA circuit was so cool. Um, and I guess at that time, it was just down to the two tracks with Albany, Saratoga, and Devil's Bowl. But there was a lot of other racing going on, and you guys hit the road. You know, we did. Um, and you know, the thing of it is, and, you know, throughout this, you're going to hear cycles with the Richards family and uh-huh. what went on in our world. Um, you know, I knew the, you know, Richards's before obviously that I even raced there because my father raced in there and there was times that you know there was situations with tech you know when when cars got disqualified and they shouldn't have been disqualified and the scales were off and then you run the car back over this car over the scales and the weights were good but then the car got disqualified and so there was a lot of that kind of stuff and and um, so we just there was some disagreements. I can't even remember what they were around 1990. You know, we started out at, uh, at Albany, Saratoga, and Devil's Bowl. We had one of the first actual um, new-style new bodies body. yeah. um, on the cars. And, you know, it's funny. I forgot about that. Scott Duell reminded me about that a, a couple years ago about, you know, he remembered that about Albany, Saratoga, that I was one of the first ones to show up uh, with one of the new-style bodies that the Dirt Modifieds run now. Um, so that was cool, but... Uh, 
at that point, we just uh, decided to go uh, on the road and, and that summer, and we traveled around a little bit to some other tracks. And, and I will remember uh, 1990, um, the only time that I ever raced a car at Bear Ridge Speedway. Yeah, I was going to ask you about was, this. Was... Uh, in 1990, believe it or not, I've been to Bear Ridge quite a few times, um, and they used to have an open competition race at the end of the year. And um, we went over there for that race, and uh, we actually uh, had drag rubber on the car, and, and the tires were like 110 inches big. And uh, we went up over and won that race at Bear Ridge Speedway, the only time I ever raced at Bear Ridge. So I always figure mm. it's no sense of me going back to Bear Ridge because I'm always going to be 100%. Yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, and I rem- I'll never forget the guy by the name of Brownies um, sponsored a lot of stuff over in the Canaan Bear Ridge areas, yep. and uh, he was a sponsor. I still have the the trophy and everything from that race, um, from winning that race at Bear Ridge. At the- that was at the end of the 1990 season. Yeah. Were you overwhelmed at all at any point jumping into? I mean, it's big time. You know, guys were making fifty thousand dollars a year even back then racing CJ's tracks. I think. I wasn't to begin with. Like, at the end of the 89 season, I was like, holy shit, I just ran side-by-side with Jack Johnson. I can do that. And then we worked our tails off through the winter that year. And I'm not going to tell you that 1990 wasn't a struggle, and that could have created some of the problems at the two tracks, you know what I mean, whether I was overdriving it or I was trying to keep up with the image that my father had had for the years. And um, I think that that probably played into some of it probably why we did go race other places just because we, we were struggling i'm not going to tell you we weren't um i did win a race uh in 1990 at uh albany saratoga they had a uh, high end they used to do high and low handicap yep. they used to have 40 something cars weekly and it they would split them up and do 20 in the in the the a division or, or high handicap and 20 cars in the low handicap um and i remember that I ended up, obviously, it was in the low handicap one, and I ended up starting dead last. I think it was 23rd or 24th, and ended up winning that race at Albany-Saratoga in 1990. It was my first win um, at Albany-Saratoga. So um, I did get a win that year at Albany-Saratoga, but it wasn't in the main division. You know what I'm saying? As far as, like, uh, the modifieds. So then you really hit the road the next year, though. You guys went north. Uh, We did. Um, You know, we had heard about this place called Frogtown. Yeah. Um, and it was like, uh, you know, everybody would tell us about how uh, the place was, you know, it was kind of, I don't know what you'd call it back then. It was kind of run down or, but it, it was, wasn't, it wasn't like it is now. No, but it was like a great facility and they paid well. And uh, somewhere along the line, my father knew maybe somebody that raced there or somebody he talked to, or I can't even remember how it all come about at the time. Um, but we did, we started racing at, uh, we would race on, Saturday nights at Frogtown Mohawk, and then we would race Sunday nights at Cornwall. In Ontario. In Ontario, over the border. So we would go up uh, Saturday afternoons. We'd leave like uh, 1, 2 o'clock on a Saturday, and then, uh, you know, we would spend the night. And uh, actually, the track was um, giving us rooms um, to spend the night. Uh, They would give us a a room to spend the night, and either it was split up between either Cornwall or Frogtown, whichever one gave us the room. Um, We would race both tracks. Um, The hard part was... Um, you know, getting done in Cornwall, Ontario on a Sunday night at 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. Uh, you know, back then my father just had a, a little repair shop and, and I mean, one record and maybe a flatbed. You know what I'm saying at that time? Um, so our, his business was very small, but he loved racing. So he, he just, we, he didn't care. So he wanted to keep racing and we, uh, 
I, I can remember getting home two, three, four o'clock in the morning, uh, sometimes on Monday mornings. Um, but he didn't care. He was doing it for the experience and to, to race, you know what I mean? So we, we raced that whole summer um, there. We ran some Mr. – I believe it was Mr. Dirt races that year. Um, and I think that 1991, um, I won Dirt 358 Rookie, Rookie of the Year yeah. um, in uh, the Dirt Series, uh, which – most people now know of the the 358 series or the or the super dirt car series, um, and that was in '91. So we closed out the year, you know, traveling, uh, won some races at uh, um, at uh, Frogtown. Never won no races at Cornwall. No. Um, one thing I do have a vivid memory of racing up there for the few years that we did. Um, I've only rolled a car well until until last week or this year. <laughs> I had never rolled a car over. Uh, any kind of car except for at Cornwall Motor Speedway two different times in the same corner. Really? Turn one. It's the only track I'd ever rolled a car over until this year uh, at Oswego. So, um, yeah, it was it was a good year. I mean, it was it was good to get on the road, um, you know, get out of the hometown, um, get out of that image where you felt like you had to prove something to the hometown fans and stuff like that. So uh, it was it was good to get on the road for sure. You kind of mentioned it. Could you, at that time, fully appreciate what your dad was doing and those sacrifices he was making? Or is that something that came later, especially once you had a son who was trying to race? i got to be honest with you. I don't think I ever really appreciated that until after the death of my father. Um, I think that kids take things for granted in this day and age. I think we all do. Probably you guys can can attest to that. Absolutely. But I don't think I fully appreciated any of that until... He wasn't around to do it, to be honest with you. Yep. Um, you know, the the travel alone is enough to kill you, literally. I mean, it's you could fall asleep behind the wheel at 4 in the morning getting home and, and get up to open the shop two hours later. I mean, you guys must have had close calls or, or wonder how the hell are we going to do this? It's, you know, raining on a Sunday night and we're four hours from home. Yeah, it, uh, <laughs> there is some... some uh, Crazy rides, you know what I mean? It was foggy a lot of the times down through uh, Port Henry, Elizabeth, or down through that area of the roads, down through Lake Champlain, uh, because we'd have to go up and cross the bridge. Uh, We'd go all the way up 87 to Plattsburgh, and then uh, Route 190 up to Ellenburg, and then over through to, uh, you know, over towards Mohawk in that area in the the Indian Reservation, for people that don't know. Um, So it was just for Mohawk was three hours from our doorstep. Right. And that wasn't Cornwall on Sunday nights where we had to cross through the border as well. Um, usually that was pretty quick, so it, it wasn't a tough deal. But um, it was, uh, you know, we stayed, we had an open trailer back then in 1991. It was, a, it kind of had like an enclosed box on it and it had a tire, like a double row tire rack on the front of sure. it. Some guys still have the same style trailer today. But I will tell you, it was, it was cool because the car was exposed and you see it. You don't see it, I guess, anymore. Yep. Back then, you used to see it all the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, no matter where the, where we stopped, whether it was the Bears Den on the Indian Reservation or <laughs> a gas station or whatever, people were interested in what you were doing because you had that car on that open trailer. Yep. Um, one thing I do remember, it was either the 91 or the 92 season. Um, bad part about having a, an open trailer was... We got all the way to Mohawk one night. Um, I jumped in the car to unload the car, and I had set the steering wheel on the outside chute of the race car when we were loading uh. it and drove the car on. And we got up there, and there was no steering wheel on the race car. 
because it had fallen off on the open trailer. And somewhere between uh, Castleton, Vermont, and, and the Indian Reservation, steering wheel was somewhere. It's probably still there. Somebody probably yeah. found it over in a cornfield somewhere <laughs> or something. But um, I do vividly remember that, losing our steering wheel one oh, time. That's good. Yep. <laughs> yep. You talked about sponsorships being a big deal and nothing was given. How do you cook up with Vavoom Shampoo? Well, that come a little bit later. What happened was um, we ran up to Mohawk, or Mohawk in Cornwall, 91 and 92. Um, one race is 93. I, don't, I may have finished second points a couple times up yeah. there. Um, but we were definitely traveling up there throughout that stretch from 91 to 93, um, running um, some of the Super Dirt Car Series races, the 358s. And then what happened was, I think it was at the end of the 93 season, or somewheres in that time, I met a guy that what he was is he was a rep um, for Vavoom Shampoo out of Canada. And um, his name was Sylvain uh, Mercier. And um, it's kind of funny because maybe up until last year, the year before, he actually become the same guy, became an official and worked with the Empire Super Sprints. Oh, really? Yeah. So uh, he worked with Dean Reynolds and them guys and ESS. I think his love for motorsports, yeah. you know, even though because he got involved with me back then, but it, it still continued for him. Um, so basically, I can't remember. They may have given us $2,500, um, 3000 maybe at the most, you know what I mean? Back then, you know, that's like 10000 now, you know what I'm saying? It's... Uh, but the, I will tell you that they did give us free Vavoom shampoo samples, <laughs> so that was a bonus. You know what I'm saying? So um, it uh, that was pretty cool. But uh, there was stuff we could hand out, and that was really my first foray into you know being able to have something for fans to give away. And I, and I can remember, you know, it's the craziest thing. You know, when people come up to you and they're they ask you for a shampoo sample you know what i mean so yeah you usually don't go to the dirt track no no and and that honestly started in 1994 um and we were actually uh picked up that sponsorship actually it was because i met him at the racetrack and i think i met him at cornwall he just happened to come out of the blue and started talking to me and you know uh french speaking um you know took a liking to to me and what we were doing and how we did things and so we became friends is really how it is and it's one of the biggest things that i try to preach in this day and age to people is um you know you never know who that person is walking through that pit area mm -hmm. um and i will tell you that was a perfect example for me in 1993 because i didn't know who that guy was i mean he was a very clean cut uh well-spoken gentleman and and uh you know he uh you would have never thought that he worked for the company that he did and was going to be able to give you a sponsorship when I first met him, to be honest with you. Um, you know, so it was just, and we actually went to and stayed at his house when we raced in Canada for some races and some things like that. And, and I tell people that now, and I mean, sometimes I, I don't know if they believe me or not, but, uh, you know, that there's always somebody walking around that may give you, it doesn't, listen, it doesn't have to be $3,000. It could be, hundred bucks to put fuel in your truck. Um, there's yep. always them people walking around. Yep. yep. Um, so that sponsorship uh, kind of opened your eyes, I would say, to what was about to happen for you in 95. Well, it did. In, in 94, um, we actually... You had a great year in 94, well, by the way. Because I, I think back, I think we raced at Devil's Bowl as well that year. In Malta and Frog, uh, Frogtown. Yeah, we, so we went actually went back after going away from the CVRA. Um, you know, I cut my, I guess my racing teeth 
away from the tracks here, you know what I mean, in, in our hometowns. And uh, I went back racing uh, Albany, Saratoga, uh, Devil's Bowl, and uh, I'm trying to think what else we did that year. Uh, no, I guess we didn't. We just ran uh, Mohawk, and then uh, which is Frogtown, and maybe we ran some special shows at them tracks. But we didn't race full-time at Malta, I do know that. Um, just because, you know, the confliction of Friday, Saturday, Sundays. Sure. Malta was on Friday, Mohawk was on Saturdays. Uh, but I will tell you, one thing that really stepped up our program was um, my father, um, he, as I said, he just, our business was just a, a small little repair shop, and he had a, a one tow truck, a single-line boom tow truck, and uh, one single flatbed. And he plowed snow all winter. He worked his tail off um, to actually buy us a uh, Kevin Ender's motor um, for the 94 season, mm. uh, which I remember very clearly him spending $25,000 or, or more for that back motor then. back then um, to be able to do. And, and uh, so that really catapulted us that year to, um, you know, helping us out and, and getting us rolling and, and uh, you know, just – getting to where we need to be in the sport as far as what everybody else had. Um, you know, and you, you hear that a lot in racing. You know, people are always trying to keep up with the Joneses. And, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, we had a $2,500 or $3,000 sponsorship from Bavoom. But, you know, at the end of the day, if it wasn't for my father's hard work in the wintertime plowing snow and doing all that kind of stuff, we'd have never been able to buy that $25,000 Ender's motor. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, uh, I do remember now you, you say that about – you know, Albany, Saratoga, and, and, and Devil's Bowl is one thing that I vividly remember about the 94 season. We were down at Albany, Saratoga Speedway, and we had that new Enders motor. And it was more power than what I was used to. I mean, we had, uh, you know, home-built motors, basically, is what we had. Uh, my father uh, had, had built the motors with another guy, uh, Eddie Bruno, and there was a guy by the name of Jack Edgerton that some racers will know that had a machine shop. Local guy. Local guy. He was doing work on it. It was another guy by the name of Jim Hyde. Um, that built motors for my father um, through the years when when uh, C.D. Kova, Bob Savoy, them guys were racing. He had a uh, fuel injection service right in Fairhaven. So we went to Albany, Saratoga the first couple races of the year, and we couldn't get that motor hooked up. It was more, it was more, it was a different motor than what I was used to. Um, the torque, the horsepower, that kind of stuff. Um, so after two races, we took that motor out and we put our home built motor back in. And I went down to Albany, Saratoga, and won that night with our home-built motor, and we left the $25,000 motor sitting in, sitting at home. Um, so that just goes to show you that— There's another part of that story, though, that you're not telling. Well, I, I can tell. All right. <laughs> so um, it was, it was, it was, that was a humbling experience right there, to know that your father just worked his tail off all winter to give you the best that he could give you and have a $25,000 motor, and, and the $25,000 motor didn't get the job done. Um, just because, you know, we couldn't get it hooked up. We just, whatever yeah. we did with the gearing and that home-built motor just seemed to get around that track better for me as a driver. Um, and I, I vividly remember um, it. Uh, I can't remember if my father was standing there, um, Chris Irwin. I can remember exactly where we were parked today. And, uh, you know, Gardner Stone, um, and, and people know Gardner very well. I just saw him down in Florida here a few weeks ago. He and, and Todd was racing then, um, and, and Gardner, you know, they spend the, the best money that they can buying motors as well. And he could not believe that we won that race with a home-built motor against the motors that were twenty twenty five thousand dollars $25,000. And, and uh, that, was, that was one of the first times I ever really remember 
having a conversation with Gardner Gardner Stone, and uh, he was just he was puzzled by that. He really was. Did he protest it? No, he didn't protest it. He just, you know, we got there early. Kind of like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got there early, I think, the next week. You know, because it's like anything. You you know, you go and win a race at Albany, Saratoga, and, and it may have been my first, you know, 358 win against all the big dogs there. Um, I may have won a couple that year. I'm not sure. But um, so we were the fir- next week, we were probably the first ones in line because we, we were proud proud as peacocks. You know what I'm saying? That we had just won at Albany Saratoga Speedway. And, and uh, anybody that's uh, raced at Albany Saratoga, I'm sure the, the people that get their first win there can appreciate what I'm saying. It's like that's the place th- or that was and it still is the place to win at on Friday nights. If you can if you can win there, you've you've won a race, you know. But it was that next week that Gardner comes strolling over, and, and uh, we had that conversation. It was pretty ironic where, you know, meeting him there for the first time, and then everything cycles back around in life. Yeah. So, Justin said it, very successful year, and you just get this big win, and it looks like everything's in upward trajectory. Why then switch to asphalt? Well, it wasn't planned that way. I can tell you that. Um, when I was racing at uh, Mohawk in Cornwall, um, I met a guy by the name of Tim Fuller. And uh, people in the dirt world are going to know uh, who Tim Fuller was, is. Uh, um, he's still a good friend of mine. Um, we parked next to him numerous times, got to know them really well. Um, my father and his father were kind of cut from the same mold you know what i mean they believed in in doing things uh the home built way um it wasn't buying it you you built your bodies you you know when i was racing dirt towards the end um you know my father one thing that he did was and you see it happen now is you know people how would i say this they buy everything yeah um what my father did I can't remember in the 90s where it was. He went out and bought all the equipment for me to build race car bodies. Um, And he said, I'm going to buy you one brand new race car. And I think that was around 1992. And I remember going to L&R Speed Shop to pick that car up. And he said, that's the the one and only car that I'm going to buy you brand new like that. He said, I want you to make a copy of that body. You get out cardboard, whatever you have to do. And about two weeks later, all the equipment rolled in on the truck, and he bought me a brake, a bead roller, a bender, all that kind of stuff. And from that point on, I had to build my own bodies because my father would not buy me any more bodies on the race car. He felt, this is your lesson. You know, this is... Teaching it. Teaching, yeah, teaching it. You know, you don't don't hear of them kind of stories much anymore. I'm not saying people don't do it, um, but, you know... Not to jump back, but it just made me think of that, of, of that lesson that, you know, uh, of building bodies. And I actually had, um, right before that year, I want to say before that 94 year, maybe 92, 93, um, I actually opened up a little speed shop. And I was actually building bodies for guys as well. Um, I can remember building bodies for uh, Tanner Siemens' dad, Gary Siemens. Uh, Vince Quinville was actually driving their car then. I think I did 10 bodies one winter. Um, building bodies on different race cars because I had all the equipment to do it. Um, so we get into that 94 season, as, as we talked about, and um, I met Tim Fuller, and, and he called me. I don't know where it was, close to the end of the season. Maybe the season was over. And he's like, uh, you know, because he knew we were doing it on my father's bankroll. 
he he know he, he was doing the same thing, but he had for years, but he got Kenny Drugs as a sponsor. Um, and he got help from uh, you know, I believe at the time Bob McCready helped him get that sponsor, the Kenny Drug sponsorship. So what happened was he uh, called me up and said, Hey, I got a tip for you. And if you knew Tim Fuller, um, he, he likes to sling a lot of bullshit. He likes to pick. He likes to joke around. Um, you know, I, I still have a message from this year that he left me at the at the racetrack where uh, you wouldn't want to listen to the message, but I just I kept it because <laughs> it's pretty entertaining. So if I have a bad day, I go and play that message and, and listen to him. But I didn't know if he was pulling my leg. He said, hey, I got a tip for you on a sponsor, and um, you need to call these people as soon as possible. Um, they're looking to sponsor a race car. And I'm like, oh, great, man. I'm going to. I'm going to be able to, you know, go and, 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 and at the time he told me it was Kenny drug stores. I knew it was Kenny drugs. And I'm like, you know, I was nervous. I, I honestly, I held off calling them. How, be, how old are you? Well, 94. So, uh, 71, 81, 91, 23 years old. Yeah. I, I, it took me honestly a few days to make the phone call. Um, because I'd never been in that position before to pick up the phone and, and, uh, you know, Say hey, I'm I'm Mike Bruno, you know what I mean. You, you yeah. get to that point, and you don't know, you know who knows you, or or I don't know. I guess it was it was kind of a big change for me, you know. And I may have even called him back to see if he was pulling my leg, you know what I mean, to see if it was for real. Um, so I ended up calling a guy by the name of Ralph Stapello. His name was, and um, I'll give you a little backstory on that. As some people may recognize he owned a company called AMG Marketing. He oversee the Kenny Drug sponsorship, the Wheel sponsorships back in the day, oh. uh, Coors, uh, Coors Extra Gold with Mike McLaughlin. Um, These are high profile. Yeah, Huge. yeah. He had uh, you know back in the day, his firm uh, Auto Palace. If you remember the wow. the, the pavement uh, modified yeah. cars with Auto Palace, Joe Brett Hearn had the Auto Palace car. Well, this guy Ralph Stapello. And uh, Mike, a guy that worked with him that was the lawyer for them, um, they had this company called AMG, and they were run out of Utica, New York. And uh, what they did is they facilitated the deals, basically. So I get on the phone with him. He's like, yeah, I've heard all about you, blah, 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 blah. And I get on the phone. He's Italian, so he was a fast talker. You know, and I could see him, you know, when I was talking to him on the phone, you know, moving his hands and just he was that <laughs> kind of guy. You know what I'm saying? Um so he's like, well, you know, I'd like to meet with you. Um, you know, you're going to have to drive out to Utica, Utica, New York, um, to uh, come out and meet with us. Uh, where it was actually in New, New Newport Mills or New, I can't remember the town, but it's out near Utica, um, where they they had their uh, AMG marketing. So we go out there, and uh, I sit down and meet with him, and he's like. You know, he I wanted to, had to bring my resume. You know what I'd done for racing, my family background. Um, that was probably the first time because really with the Vavoom sponsorship, I didn't really have to sell myself on that deal. He kind of became a friend and started hanging around the the pit area, and and he just we, it was different. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it yeah. was it was it was a different kind of deal. And he, he found you. It was he less found, professional. It was totally yeah. It was totally. Yeah. So what happened was. Um, Basically, I had to t tell him, you know, where we started out. And, you know, some of the people that yeah, I told him had drove my father's cars, he knew of. You know, obviously, C.D. Colville, Bob Savoy, the same names that I said early on. Um, so he recognized the, the equipment and stuff that, 
in, in the cars that my my father provided at the time. So we had a great conversation. We talked about it. And somewhere in the conversation, and I'm going to tell you, my father was a dirt loyalist. He was dirt racing, dirt racing, dirt racing. Because he had done some asphalt. He did. But the, let me tell you this about that. He ran with the NASCAR North Tour at Devil's Bowl when they ran in Sundays, 1970. Three, four. Four, seven, whatever year it was. Um, and the problem is he just felt it was way too expensive. The tires, uh, all that kind of stuff. And he tried it. You know, uh, CJ had talked him into to uh, you know racing and, and uh, running on the pavement. But he just he didn't like it because it was at his level, what he could afford to do, it was too much money. Yeah. Um, so the hard part was when, when I get done that conversation and stuff, you know, it's like, they're like, I'll get, we'll get back in touch with you. But the key thing that they told me at that conversation was, um, we are in the process. Well, we Kenny drugstores in the process, they're going to be building stores in the Burlington, Vermont, Barry, Vermont and Plattsburgh, New York area. And, People now know Kenny Drugs like a household name, but back in 1993, 94, 90, there was no Kenny Drug stores. Right. Yeah, um, and they said we want to we want to use racing as a platform um, to be able to kick off these stores, get fan interaction. We've done it with Tim Fuller. We've done it with Bob McCready. Um, it has worked for us in our home base area, which they were based in Watertown, New York. Kenny Drugs was um, so. The problem is I'm scratching my head and I'm saying, you know, I, I'm I'm racing at, you know, uh, Summit Mohawk. Well, Tim Fuller's got Kenny Drug sponsorship there. You know, we, we can't race at the same track with the same sponsorship. Albany, Saratoga, there's they're not building those stores down in Albany. Devil's Bowl, that's not really even close enough to the Burlington America because that was the first thing I projected to them. I said, well, how about I stay racing dirt and – I race at, you know, Mohawk and at Devil's Bowl or or whatever. They're like, we really need you to race within our markets. Where the markets are. So they said, isn't there some paved tracks in that area? And I we got talking about it with them, and, and I'm like, yeah, there's Airborne Speedway, Air, Airborne Park Speedway, and a place called Thunder Road that I'd never been to in my life. And it was the weirdest conversations to have a turning point in your life right there and say, they really want me to race pavement? Is that what they're saying here? <laughs> and really, at the end of the day, that's what he was telling me. He, he said that if you want this sponsorship, I mean, this was later conversations, you know what I'm saying? It didn't yeah. happen that day, but they laid that out to me on the table that day saying, you know, this is, this is our, what we're looking to do. Um, they didn't tell me that day how much they were going to pay me. They didn't tell me what they were going to do. They wanted to see if it was all going to be able to mold together first to make it happen. Because I could have went back to them and said, no, I want to continue to race Devil's Bowl, and I'm going to race Albany Saratoga. And then they would have said, see you later. We're going to luck. We're going to find somebody <laughs> else to drive the Kenny Drugs car. Yeah. Um, so the hardest part in my whole career, one of them, was going back to our shop. Tell it, your dad. It, you got it. You got it, 100%. And I can remember my father, God, I, he may have thrown some wrenches. <laughs> he, he may have stomped his feet. Um, he, he, he did not want to hear that. Um, you know, he, he, he really didn't want to hear about race and pavement because he didn't like it. 
You know what I mean? Um, but he didn't say no. You know what I mean? Um, because he knew that we were in a first position where we may have a, a substantial deal on our hands um, with a sponsor. And, and he didn't want to see me lose that because he wanted me to see me continue on in racing. If you've got a home project going on, your first stop should be Barry Tile and Morrison Clark Incorporated. From flooring to kitchens, from bathrooms to outdoor projects, from your home to your business, they are number one in Central Vermont. As you've heard on this show, Justin and I are officially middle-aged super dads now. And one of our favorite hobbies is looking at the Barry Tile Facebook page to see their latest projects. I love the carpeting and hardwood flooring, and he loves the kitchen countertops and shower installations. And it's true. Barry Tile has been family owned for 50 years and their experience shows in every single job. It's high quality work by highly qualified people who can design and install everything you need to upgrade your home or office. It's not a big chain store. It's local people with common sense and a ton of skill. Be like us and check out the Barry Tile Facebook page to see some examples of their incredible work. Or you can give them a call at 802-476-0912. You can also stop into the showroom at 889 South Barry Road in Barry, Vermont, and tell them that the guys from Uncommon Deeds sent you. This winter has certainly reminded us of what it's like to be without electricity, and it's no fun at all. So don't let it happen again. Call Bushy's Generator Sales and Service so that you and your family are ready for the next storm. Whether it's Kohler or Briggs & Stratton, Bushy's is Vermont's leader for home standby generators and for Briggs & Stratton portable generators. With manufacturer-certified technicians, free in-home estimates, factory warranties, service after the sale, and 0% financing all available to you, it's easy to see why Bushy's is number one. And they're doing it again, by the way, when you call Bushy's Generator Sales and Service between now and Thunder Road's Memorial Day Classic, mention that you heard this ad on Uncommon Deeds and save $500. Bushy's Generator Sales and Service covers all of Vermont and New Hampshire, as well as Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New York. Give them a call at 802-591-1903 or visit their Facebook page or bushysgenerator.com. Bushy's Generator Sales and Service of Springfield and Brookfield, Vermont. We keep your power on. What was your goal at that point before this conversation with Kenny Drugs had happened? Were you, did you have something you wanted to achieve? I think back then it's changed now from back then. I wanted to race the Daytona 500. I wanted, Even as a dirt racer, that was in my mind as a kid, wanting to race the Daytona 500. I don't know why, yeah. but I remember growing up racing. Because it was badass. It That's was. Why. It was totally <laughs> yeah. different than what it is today. Yeah. And back then, things like that were attainable. Um, there was opportunities to be able to to go and do things like that, and, and it's all changed, unfortunately. But I remember thinking that I want to race in the Daytona 500 mm-hmm. um, as a kid growing up, and and I I love dirt racing. I had a great time at it. We were, we finally got to the point where you know we went and raced uh, a couple times at Super Dirt Week with the 358. You know, I had finished 93 and 94. I finished second in points at Mohawk. Uh, won races. We had finally got our dirt program where it needed to be in 1994, but then all of a sudden they get a sponsorship opportunity where you're not going to race dirt anymore. Right. That was that was very, very hard um, because I felt like we could have went on and won a lot more dirt races um, at that point, and, and uh, who knows where it would have went to. Um, but with that sponsorship deal, it changed it all, and it finally, um, after some convincing, because before I could go and talk to them, I had to talk to my father, and I had to convince him 
that this is what I want to do. This is what we can, what we're going to do. And I didn't have the financial backing to be able to say, okay, now we're going to sell off all of our dirt stuff. We're going to go buy, you know what I mean? Pavement stuff all of a sudden. Now that we've got it where we need it, we're going to start over. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) try being a, you know, let's see, I was probably 23 years old, 24 years old. Try convincing your father that as somebody that had just got done plowing snow all winter, coon hunting (laughs) to sell coon hides, um, anything that he could do to make a dollar, twisting the wrenches, um, convince that person to go and switch switch gears completely. You know what I mean? He he gambled. It was it was it was it was a big gamble. So at the end of the day, I don't know how that conversation ended up finishing out, but I do remember him going off the wall when I first told him about going pavement racing. Um, Again, it just that's who my father was. I mean, I was I was used to that. You know, it's uh, growing up. I think about that and think back to some of the temper tantrums he threw, and, and I guess they're not temper tantrums, but he wanted his point known. Yeah, you know what I mean. And, and he he for sure told me that day. You know what is? Uh, I can remember it was in the shop. I remember the conversations. So he finally agreed to say, "Okay, if that's where we have to race, then." that's what we'll do. You know what I mean? And if that's really what you want to do, um, we didn't want to lose the sponsorship and, and Tim had told me, you know, roughly what he was getting for sponsorship and, you know, that kind of stuff. So I'm like, you know, the problem is it's like racing. It seems like no matter how much sponsorship you have, it's never enough. Mm. Um, and especially if you're going to sell all your dirt stuff and then try to convert to pavement, which in, in my father's mind was already four times more than what dirt racing was, just because of his foray from right. 20 years back ago. in the NASCAR yeah. North 20 years ago. Sure. Um, so I don't remember if I picked up the phone and called, G- I think it was Gene Paul Sear I might have called um, at the time, because Gene back in the day raced down at Devil's Bowl yes. with a late model car. Um it may have been around that same time or just before that or or when he was – maybe like 92 he ran down there. And, he was champion in 90. 90. Yeah. So, okay, so I knew of – and maybe my father knew Norm Sear at the time. And so I picked up the phone and uh, called uh, Gene Sear, and he said, well, I know this guy. He's pretty sharp. You should give him a call. He'd be a good one to build the car for you. And he gave me the name of uh, uh, somebody that people will recognize, Brian Latouche. Mm. And uh, – so I picked up the phone and, and talked to Brian Latouche on the phone, and I'll never forget my first conversation with Brian. I I swear that he was, he smoked two packs of cigarettes when I talked to him in a five minute conversation. He was just so wiry and yeah yeah you know I, I you know I'm sure we can help you out and build a car and blah blah blah. And he was doing his speed shop business at that time, Pride Brothers Racing, yeah. and um, that was my first conversation ever. It was a cold call to Brian Latouche. And honestly, I didn't know who the hell Brian Latouche was. You know what I mean? I only knew Gene Paul Sear because he had raced the Devil's Bowl on the dirt. And I knew his brother, and they were friends with Butch Rogers that raced and some of that kind of stuff. Um, He's like, yeah, we can build your car. And, you know, told us roughly what it was going to cost and and all that kind of stuff. And then Gene's father at the time was building motors. He had his own uh, engine shop, Norm was, and Dino Motors. Um, so I don't even know what the cost was. So we, we figured out that we could sell off our, our uh, dirt stuff, which at the time we had $25,000 motors and uh, a dirt modified. And I want to say we were pretty close to selling that stuff off and being able to build 
a brand new late model to go racing. Um, that year, we sold our used Ender's motor and our uh, our model. I don't remember who bought the modify at the time, but um, to be able to get a, a motor from Norm and uh, Brian was building the car and a guy by the name of uh, I can't remember Pat's last name, but. He just passed, I think, a few years ago, and, and the, the car was being built partially in his shop, and he did some of the work on it. So we knew the price of what it was going to cost to do it. So finally, I went back to the guys at Kenny Drugs and said, well, at AMG Marketing, and said, um, we're going to do this. We're interested in doing it. Um, we would be interested in racing at Airborne Park Speedway and, and Thunder Road Speedway, blah, 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 blah. Gave them everything that they wanted to hear. And they, I think I had to go back out there again, actually, a second time because I had to sign a contract because this was, this was no handshake. Yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? This yeah. was, there was a lawyer at the table. You know, I think they emailed me the contract to have a lawyer look over here. And um, so when I went back out there, um, I had already gone over it with a lawyer here and, and looked at it and stuff. And um, the lawyer was at the table, and, and they basically, what the deal was to start was um, they they paid for all of the car's lettering, whatever needed to be done on the cars for lettering, Kenny Drugs would pay for it. Um, they would send us the stickers, obviously, or I would take it. I can remember the first year, I think I took it to uh, Dan Pilot at Pilot Designs oh, yeah. out in Weedsport, New York. So we had to haul the car all the way out there, Jeez. and uh, they would letter it and everything, so... They did that. They would give us crew uniforms um, for as many people as we needed to. They would paint our truck and trailer, paid for all that kind of stuff, and then they would give us $10,000 in cash. Or not cash, but a check, you know what I'm saying, yeah. as sponsorship. But we had to race every week at Airborne. We had to race every week uh, at Thunder Road. Um, and there was no talk of the American Canadian Tour at that time, really, as far as they didn't care about that. Do it if you want. They cared about the Plattsburgh, New York area, and they cared about the Barry, Vermont area. Um, going off to to Oxford, Maine, or wherever, it didn't matter to them at that time. They wanted local uh, representation. So um, signed the contract and, and um, started rolling off into the 1995 season. It's going to make your head spin, right? Uh, yeah, because I had <laughs> never, <laughs> never turned a lap in my life on pavement. Yeah. Um, so... It was, uh, it was, there were some scary moments and probably sleepless nights and trying to figure all that out. And of course, my father was, was nervous because, you know, he hadn't twisted wrenches on, on a pavement car and, and pavement racing. And I had this conversation with somebody earlier today. And if you haven't been on both sides of it, it would be hard for people to understand this. Pavement racing and dirt racing, the cars are totally different. The setups, I mean, a basic setup, stagger, all that kind of stuff is the same. The people are totally different, too. Um, when you when you go to a dirt race and you go to a pavement race, the people walk different, they talk different, they wear different clothes, they have a different lingo, they have, you name it. Um, That's true. I, I'm proud to say that I've lived on both sides of that, and, and it makes me a better person. But uh, my father was nervous about that piece of it because he was, he was all about not wearing a collared shirt and and i can remember the first race that we went to thunder road he wore his work clothes which was uh 
he got as a from a uniform company, and it still said John Bruno's Auto Repair on the tag. Had his name on the tag with his with like blue dickies. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. And that's what he wore to the racetrack. You know, it wasn't he didn't want to wear a collared shirt that said Kenny Drugs and with blue and orange. No, and just, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that in itself in the off season was was a very big adjustment for for. Um, me and my father and and uh, a guy by the name of Chris Irwin that helped us out back then, um, and really there wasn't we didn't have a lot of help back then. Um, really, it was uh, it uh, we were a small family run deal. Was Thunder Road your first lap on asphalt? It was, and I can remember going to the 1995 season opener at Thunder Road. And I would want to say that was like, what is the race they do this time of year? Or they do at the beginning of the year. It's early in the year, it's right? The, it was Merchants Bank. What is it, Community Bank now? Something right. like that. Yeah. Yep. And I remember very clearly um, there was over 80 cars. I repeat, over 80 cars yep. at that first race that I went to. And um, we didn't make the show. It was colder than son of a bitch. We had, I remember we had Kenny Drugs parkas on and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, you know, it uh, it was... Uh, Which probably was not endearing to right, the you other all guys in, there. in now, the Well, and the thing of it is that there's a piece of this that you have to understand with my father, too, as well. Um, through the 94 season... Um, Midway through the year, um, I had I had met a lady at the races by the name of Elaine, and my father, in his mind, through that making the decisions of pavement racing, he thought that she was pushing me to go pavement racing. So that made the that made that struggle even more with my father because he thought it was all her idea. Um, hmm. So what happened was. Um, we, uh, through the 94 season, I think it was 1993. I want, I want to back it up a little bit here because you gotta, you got to get it in sequence. In 1993, um, we were working on our race cars uh, at our shop in Castleton. And uh, some people showed up at our, our shop and they wanted to leave their uh, vehicles there because they were going down to Lebanon Valley to watch the World of Outlaw Sprint Cars. And I see this... Uh, Guys come in, they were talking with us, and I, I won't mention names in it. And uh, all of a sudden, um, this blonde works walks in and says, hey, can I use the bathroom? And uh, we're like, yeah, sure, the bathroom's over there. And uh, boom, um, they get done leaving. And I remember the next day, this was in 1993, um, I went into, we had a convenience store at Castle and Corners back then. And I went into my stepmother the next day, and I said, I just met the most beautiful woman in my life last night. And she's like, oh, you did, huh? And it all went away. And you know what I mean? You see people, you meet people, but it kind of struck me funny. Well, through that 94 season, um, my wife was at Devil's Bowl. Well, my wife now was at Devil's Bowl with, with some people. And I remember her very clearly because she walked right up to me out of the blue and put her hand out and said, do you remember me? And I said, I can never forget you. And I remember her shaking my hand. And that was really the thing that set the spark between my wife and I was at Devil's Bowl um, in 1994. And it all started in 93, but not to back up on the story, but I don't want to miss that piece of it. Yeah. How 
I met her through the 94 year through that summer and uh, she started going racing with us and stuff and that was a piece of the juggle too with my father about not wanting to go pavement racing because he thought that I got a new girlfriend and now all of a sudden the girlfriend's swaying your decisions and and you know what I mean it uh he was he was very uh, even though my mother raced back in the day he was all about you know the guys working on the car and not letting the women distract the men and you hear all them stories about you know how people say oh the more women in the pits the slower the cars go well my father that's exactly <laughs> i've never heard that one but you've never heard that <laughs> wow. saying yeah, yeah the, the more women in the pits the slower the race cars go wow um my father he would say that um but anyways we got beyond them struggles um with my father and and uh i remember going to that first race at thunder road um my wife uh my i say my wife my girlfriend at the time elaine um we had just met less than a year before that uh, my father and, and Al Barrows, a guy that owned uh, Al's trailer sales. Yeah. He used to haul all of our race cars all over the place. He used to sell trailers. And we sat in them grandstands and watched that race that day um, and didn't make the show. With your beautiful uniforms. And With our beautiful uniforms. And truck and, and trailer. Painted up truck and trailer. And again, there's another humbling experience that I didn't know if I made the right decision. Tom, you and I were kids growing up in those grandstands at that time. Your Uncle Pat was racing. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when Mike first showed up and it was the orange hats everywhere and it looked different from what ACT was at that time? Yeah, it was a little different. I mean, I know Pat also had some of those real old school neon orange hats. Yeah. I have one still at home. <laughs> they had the little screen on the inside of the front. Yeah, 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 yeah. down. Yeah. But yeah, it was different. And I mean, it was ahead of its time, really. I remember... So it had to have been, you know, early 2000s when all of a sudden, yeah, everyone had to have a polo shirt and a battle flag and, battle flag and, and, and yeah. all that. Yeah. No, it was, uh, it was a humbling experience. It's, uh, you know, and, and, uh, but I will say I credit my father because he's the type that still, you know, he, he's, he wasn't ready to throw the towel in. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, and, and we got some help from Brian Latouche and some people like that. And it really wasn't that I had a bad car or anything. just didn't have no experience. You know, it wasn't, you know, when you start a season at Thunder Road and you live where we live, there was no preseason. I wish, now thinking about it, I wish I would have been able to rent the track and just go run 500 laps in that race car. Um, I would never put somebody in that position that I was in. You know, whether it's my son or somebody else, I would make sure that got some seat time. Because to go to Thunder Road for the first time, I remember... 80 cars. <laughs> I, I remember going out on that track and practice and just being like, what the hell did I get myself into here? You know, it felt like... Uh, you know, I was trying to keep the car straight, but the car wanted to go sideways, and I was driving the car too hard, and, and uh, you know, dirt, it was, you know, drive down the corner, you know, you set the car, and the car, you'd have all kinds of side bite. Well, that's not the way it works in pavement. It's just the opposite. Yeah. Um, so I, but I remember thinking back to that and being like, you know, th- this, this is a challenge, you know, it's, it's not going to be, it's not going to be easy, and it was a, it was a whole different world for sure. So you had... Brian Latouche helping you a little bit, but did you have any help or advice from any of the other racers? Did any of them be like, we heard you were coming? Or after not qualifying, be like, listen, kid, this is what's this is what you're doing. You know, there could have been some, but I don't 
don't remember. Or, or was it because of the flashy truck and trailer and uniforms? They're all like, mm, they've got Well, I'm sure there was some people laughing and saying, hey, that son of a bitch didn't make the race. Yeah. Look what he showed up to Thunder Road with. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, but I can't say that I ever remember anybody treating us ill-fated or, you know what I'm saying? There was never that we heard anything like that. Um, and I'm sure there were some people that were willing to give a hand. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It, uh, I don't remember anybody in particular, um, but I'm sure there was. And Brian knew a lot of people, yeah. um, you know, because he sold a lot of parts to people and, uh, you know, helped us out get get rolling. You know what I'm saying? Um, but I will say, once Airborne opened, um, by that time I had already had that experience at Thunder Road, and I felt better on the bigger track. Um, I just liked the bigger track better. There was more room to think about what you were doing going down the straightaway than Thunder Road when you, you know, you, know, you mashed the gas the first time coming out four, and I'm like, holy cow, I'm into turn one already. You know, it's like I never ran a track, a quarter-mile track like that before, that small. I mean, I ran Bear Ridge on the dirt, but being on dirt and being on pavement, the, the acceleration rates in the way a pavement car comes up to speed and you get down to the corner – feels a lot quicker than what it does with a dirt car. You get a little bit of wheel spin in a dirt car. Yeah. You don't always get that initial forward drive. Yeah. Um, so by the time I got the Airborne for the first race, it was probably in May, maybe the spring green or something along them lines. Then we were really, really starting to, you know, get more comfortable with it, I guess, you know, and understand. Because, listen, staggering a race car, stagger, crossweight's crossweight. Um, you know, all the stuff that I learned in dirt, applied except for you get into you know front end geometry and and uh, bump steer and i mean it's uh some of that stuff i never even heard of different in my world life. Yeah. yeah different world you did figure airborne out pretty quickly you guys won within the first month or six weeks we did and and uh you know it i don't remember i maybe won a two or three two back to back two yeah. back to back um in that rookie season in 95 and and um and I almost won the championship. Yeah, and we ended up winning rookie of the year that year. Um, and uh, it was just, it was just things that we knew that we took with us. I guess that the basics of racing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. The basics of pavement racing, the basics of dirt racing are, are similar. You set your car up. You have a you have a um, a baseline that you go by, um, and that's basically what we did. We just stuck to basics and. And, uh, you know, you know, your stagger on dirt is no different than your stagger on pavement. It's a lot less on pavement, but this concept is the same mm-hmm. of the adjustments in the race car, believe it or not. You know, people wouldn't think that, um, but they really are. It's just pavement, you got a lot more grip. Dirt, you're searching for grip all the time. Um, so, it, uh, yeah, we, uh, we had a great year that first year. I met a lot of friends. Um, it was a whole new world for us. Like I said, it was, we went from the dirt world to the pavement world and I will distinctively remember, and you can ask him that, well, he, who knows he's, he's getting old now. He wouldn't remember it, but Patrick LaPearl, his rookie year parked next to us. Isn't it his birthday? Today? I, is it? <laughs> or yesterday? I don't remember what year it was. What year, do you know what year Patrick LaPearl was a rookie? 98. Okay. So I'm, I'm jumping ahead, but I, I, about Airborne, it made me think about that, how Patrick LaPearl um, and his brother Eric parked next to us at Airborne. It was probably 97, maybe. Maybe. And um, they didn't know the Panhard bar, which way was up or down, and what it did to the race car. And I remember explaining to them very clearly um, what that did in a race car and stuff, and Patrick was a, a rookie back then. That's when I first met Patrick LaPearl. So. You said he's old. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> we're all getting old. You know what I'm saying? But um, that was uh, it was it was a good time. Um, you know, and anytime you can come out with a new sponsor like that in '95 and, and win races, right? So, how did Kenny Drugs they take were, it after that first year? I mean, obviously they were happy. They were ecstatic. You know what I mean? It uh, how things uh, progressed and and uh, you know we were traveling. I can't remember where they even built the stores. Um, I knew that there was a store that was in Plattsburgh that got built. There was one in Barry that got built, and we actually uh, we had to go to. You know, their stores. Um, preseason in Plattsburgh, they used to have a big car show in the yeah. Craig Civic Center. Yeah. We had a big display at the the Craig, in, the, in the mall or whatever. Um, so, you know, them kind of things were, it was a good relationship. You know what I mean? And, and the hard part was that I lost connections with a lot of my friends in the dirt. Um, mm. You know, I was good friends with some of them people. But as I said, the pavement was totally different. So things, things changed on that end for me that... You know, some of that I regret now, not regret that I did it, but I wish I would have stayed closer in touch with some of them people back then. You know what I'm saying? So then you're off and running and Malone opened up in 96 and you guys were back to racing three or four nights a week with the tour and kind of the same mode as as the dirt racing, right? Because you guys were always on the road with the dirt series. Well, that, and that's the thing. It's now... Seeing racing where it is today and looking back and, you know, it's hard for people to sometimes to race one night a week. Um, very rarely do you see anybody race two nights a week anymore. Yeah. Um, at the end of that 94 season in dirt, we ran 80 races mm. um, between the local tracks plus, uh, you know, traveling with the 358 Super Dirt Car Series, finished fifth in points that year. Um, I can remember racing 10 nights in a row. Um, and we won the last night uh, at Devil's Bowl in 94 on the end of the 10-night run. Um, so, yeah, from 95, we kind of just raced Airborne and Thunder Road. And then 96, we started like, I don't know, I think the, the, the pavement bug got us. You know what I'm saying? Where, you know, we had some limited success and, and we won a couple races and we started meeting more people. Um, Kinney Drugs actually upped their sponsorship um, that year. Um, which was pretty cool. Um, you know, anytime a sponsor after the first year wants to give you more money, um, it's it's always a good thing. Um, so we were able to um, actually start building a second car. And uh, at the time, um, we actually, Brian, I think we had left-hander cars is what Brian was selling at the time. Um, so we actually bought it. We may have bought it through Brian or we... Um, we uh, got it direct from left-hander. But I, anyways, I started a relationship with left-hander um, cars because one thing that I've always done is tried getting in with the manufacturer when I raced. Um, and it's kind of funny because when I raced dirt in the early years, um, I always ran Troyer cars. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually, my dad had, um, he had show cars. He had a champ car, um, which that's how I actually met Jeff Carter um, back 30-something years ago or, or whatever. And then um, we always tried to get in with a manufacturer. Um, and at the end of the dirt, I was racing Troyers. Um, and then I had actually got a Bicknell car, um, started my relationship with them. So we did the same thing with left-hander. Um, got in with left-hander. Um, a left-hander was the only car that I ever raced. Were they Wisconsin or something? Yeah, out west. Yeah. It was the only car that I ever raced. Um, I did have a Townsend car at one time, but predominantly we had left-hander cars. And um, so we started building another car through the winter, I believe, of 95. And, um, you know, because we learned fast 
how racing Thursday nights at Thunder Road and Saturday nights at, at Airborne, one day in between was not a lot if you tore up a car at Thunder Road. And your chance of tearing up a car at Thunder Road on Thursday nights was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, knock the fenders off it, uh, you know, do any of that kind of stuff. So we actually had, uh, you know, uh, a couple dirt modifieds when we ended. So we kind of wanted to get back to that same pattern of, you know, having a car for each track and then picking whichever car worked the best at the track we're going to go to for a series race. That's the car that we would have set up to go there. Um, so I don't remember Father's Day's in June. Yep. So we never got that car. I took this is this is a highlight, and I've been trying to find this video. Um, in nineteen ninety six, the week of Father's Day, um, myself and my father and, and the kid I, I referenced, Chris Irwin, um, we built a car, um, a left hander car, and we finished it just in time to go to Thunder Road. And I wanna say that we got rained out maybe on the Thursday of Thunder Road, and he used to do Sunday nights back then. So what would happen is, does that sound right? Yep. yep. It does. Okay. Um, we had a Father's Day race, and the first race I ever won at Thunder Road was a brand new car, and it did it on Father's Day. Hmm. So that's probably one of my most magical moments in racing that I'll remember because not every day you build a race car especially a pavement car after only racing for one year, take it to a place like Thunder Road, win your first race, and you do it on Father's Day. Mm, that's pretty good. So it was, a, it was a good memory. So I've been looking for that video um, of that race because it's a pretty special moment in my life. And my notes, <clears throat> you won at Airborne the night before. <laughs> uh, you had won twice at Malone and once at Airborne already, and then you guys kept winning at Malone. So you've got eight wins by the middle of July, and then you go through a billboard, right? Yes. Was that 96? I think so. It's 96. Probably it was. Um, it was the year you had the blue roof on the Yeah, ground. 1996. So, yeah, what happened? We, had a, we actually had a blue roof, I think, at Thunder Road or at Airborne in the orange car, roof car. We did it that way, so we broke the cars up so we it was so easier for us to tell. <laughs> um, and actually went through – I remember coming off turn two at Airborne, and – one thing I, I love to do back in the day, and I, I preach to people now, and, and uh, my own son is about running the outside. Um, and I tell you, I, I love the old airborne track with the old configuration because yeah. not a lot of guys went to the outside. Yeah. Um, they were prone to hug the bottom. And one thing I always did was, was made sure that my car, I practiced on the outside lap after lap after lap. And I can't remember if it was Tony Poisson or Steve Renadette or – Somebody, they didn't do it on purpose, but we come off turn two and their car got squirrely. And I tried to correct. Well, they overcorrected and it hit my left front. And we were at speed and it sent me off the back stretch. And back then, um, they had no tires, no it's wall, nothing. Yeah. Boom, right through, the air, right through the billboards and ended up in the scoreboard um, at Airborne, like you said, and broke my foot, actually. Um, what happened was it got stuffed up into the, the gas pedal and stuff and broke my foot. So... That kind of derailed things. I don't remember. I think I was out for a, for a little bit that year, um, and that was uh, 96. Yeah, 96. And uh, I think we come back and run some races at the end of the year. Um, not sure that we that we won any races at the end of that year just because – I want to say we wiped the front clip off the car. It was a pretty, it was a pretty hard hit to go through the billboard because what happened, I think it was due on the grass that night, mm-hmm. and we I picked up speed, is what happened, and and just 
I probably tried to drive out of it with my dirt experience. Who knows? I probably stepped on the gas and tried to overcorrect it or something to get it out of it and just couldn't get it back. Doesn't work with a lake. Couldn't model. get it back. No. So, yeah. so that pretty much ended the the '96 <laughs> year. I do remember um, having a good year that year, though. I do remember that you know we knew we had something to build on for sure. Didn't you go south that winter? You worked with L. W. Miller for a little bit. I'm trying to think what year that was. That was actually between the 95, was it 96? I don't know. I'm, no, it was 95 and 96, just okay. before that. Okay. What happened was um, before that year, I, and this, this goes back to dirt racing, and people are going to recognize the names here. Um, when I won Dirt Rookie of the Year in 1991, part of winning that Rookie of the Year was you got a uh, free week school in Duke Southern was the guy's name used to have a racing school down in Florida, and they were into the trash business, and they had a racing school down there. It was called Duke Southern School of Racing. So we actually went down there for the week, and um, believe it or not, it was a uh, it was um, a paved school. It wasn't a dirt school at the time. And Ocala Speedway, which is now Bubble Raceway Park, mm-hmm. was a paved racetrack. Mm-hmm. And I took the Duke Southern School of Racing in 1992 on the paved surface at Bubba Raceway Park. Huh. And I happened to meet a guy by the name of L.W. Miller. And uh, L.W. Miller, for the people that don't know, is now married to Kelly. Dale Jr.'s Kelly sister, Kelly. Yep. And um, I got to be good friends with him. And I actually went, his father owned a Chevy dealership in uh, Dushore, Pennsylvania. Um, we got, we kept, you know, stayed friends, I guess is what I'm saying, from that 92 year. Well, three years later, he said, you know, we got a shop down here in Mooresville, North Carolina. Well, here I am. I want to race the Daytona 500. And uh, he invited me to come down and work on his cars through the winter and go to the races and stuff. So I actually hauled my race car, the Kenny Drugs car, and all my stuff to North Carolina and lived in Mooresville um, in, the winter of ni- in the winter of 95, actually, before that 96 season. Okay. And lived in his shop. And it was, uh, it was an experience. I met a lot of people down there. Um, he actually ran, I think he ran ARCA then. And I can remember him having Suburban Propane as a sponsor. We went to Atlanta. We went to some different tracks in the off season. Well, I knew that I had to get my stuff ready to go. And I was supposed to work on the cars through that winter, but I never did because we were so busy doing stuff on his cars. It got to be March or something. So we, I got the truck and trailer and, and uh, my wife now, Elaine, she stayed up in Burlington working in, uh, it, uh, she came and followed me back, and we brought the stuff back. Um, important part of the thing that we missed, though, with the connection with my wife in McDonald's. McDonald's, yeah. We skipped right over that piece of it. Um, the same year that I met my wife with the Kinney Drug Sponsorship, we had McDonald's on the car at the same time. Uh, and what happened was um, through that 95, 90, I don't know if we had it. We did have them the first year. In 1995, um, my wife actually worked for uh, Benware and Company, which owned all the McDonald's stores in the Burlington, Barrie, Plattsburgh area. There was like 20-something stores. Um, so we actually had them as a sponsor starting out on the pavement, too. So that made the... That's that, pretty good. That did. So it wasn't just the fact of the money to uh, be able to get it from Kinney Drugs and sell our dirt stuff. We also had additional funding uh, from McDonald's, so I don't want to forget about that. That was a big part of that back then where, um, and I want to say that they gave me probably five or ten, at least what Kinney Drugs did as well, Um, plus 
you know, we had uh, free meals at every McDonald's we went to. So Hell yeah. when we had to, when we were on the road, we had coupons to go to the McDonald's stores and we'd take the crew there and stuff like that. So McDonald's is a big part of it too. Jim Benware yeah. um, of getting me in that pavement and, and having that cash flow to be able to, to keep racing. You know what I'm saying? Mm, man. Shampoo and McDonald's, you're almost <laughs> living <Max>. free. <laughs> and kidney drugs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. To go it's off kind of something that you were talking about is you were racing the three, four nights a week. And you said that doesn't really happen now. And there's, you know, financial reasons for that. So it's not apples to apples. But when I'm talking to coaches on the No Fouls podcast, available wherever oh you my. listen to your podcast. That's shameless. I talk a lot with coaches about kids today. You get a lot that hyper-focus on sport on a sport. They're only going to play basketball, or they only play soccer year-round. And a lot of coaches will encourage them to do other sports because it all kind of will work together to make you a better athlete. Better, better person, yeah. Now, you're in this position now where you're seeing all these young guys come up. Are you... And obviously you want as many drivers as you can at your track. But are you encouraging them to branch out and try other places? Because it's it's interesting, and we've seen it, where guys almost get ridiculed or people talk shit because they want to go try somewhere else. And they're like, oh, that's stupid. You're running for a championship there. Don't mess something up. Well, I, I think the world, as far as all that, has changed dramatically with people. Um, and I don't think it's so much like in my position now at the racetrack, I want people to go to other racetracks, not just to make them better, but just to see how we do things. Um, it, it also gives you an experience, not as just as an experience as a race car driver, but the experience that you're having at a racetrack, um, which people people do it to there's, they spend a lot of hard-earned money, and if people are going to go to a racetrack and not enjoy themselves, then they're not going to go to that racetrack very long. So I I encourage people to go to other places. The problem is nowadays people just financially can't afford to do yeah. that. Yeah. Um, you know, like when, when people go off to, you know, Oswego and places like that race, and listen, I'm all for it. I think it's great because there's a lot of times that you'd be surprised that, you know, they come back to me and say, hey, you know, your slick surface at Devil's Bowl helped us race at this track or we're better because of what you, you did at Devil's Bowl. So I get I get it out of that piece of it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. More than me worrying about them racing at Albany, Saratoga on Friday nights, Devil's Bowl Saturday night. I look at it like this. If they come and they spend their hard-earned money with me on a Saturday night, I don't, I, I don't care where they race. You know what I'm saying? It's uh, I think it's... I think a driver, and I've found this with my own son racing, you're a better driver if you race more than one night a week. That's just oh yeah, just how it is. And I can remember back when I raced Thursday nights at Thunder Road, Friday night at Malone, Saturday night at Airborne, Sunday night was the American Canadian Tour. Or you had a dirt car still. Or we had a dirt car that we would race at Devil's Bowl. I was, I was on my game because if it didn't work on Thursday nights, I could try it on Friday night. Well, shit, by the time I got to Airborne on Saturday night, I had that piece of it figured out. And and your learning curve is so much quicker being able to run four nights a week. Now, you figure for the average guy that races one night a week, 
you're getting the same experience in one month or one week what he's getting in one month. Yeah. Does it make sense? Well, and like this thing just before you got hurt with the billboard deal, you'd won eight races by July because you were racing that many times. A lot of guys don't race eight times by July. No, and that's like you look at a guy like Matt Shepard or some of the guys that are winning the races now. They're running a lot of races. You know what I mean? They're racing three, four nights a week. Um, It's very hard for a guy, uh, you know, that races one night a week to do it. And listen, if a guy can afford to race one night a week and he still stays in the sport and he can have a good time at doing it, that's I think it's great. But if there is a guy that's going to race Friday nights, Saturday nights, and Sunday nights and travel during the week, the people that can only race one night a week can't fault that guy if he gets better quicker. Um, and I see that because a lot of times, well, this guy's cheating or this guy has this or this guy has that. Well, it's really not that. It's that he's working on his car more. He's understanding the mechanics of his car more. He's trying things more. Um, and, and any good racer is not going to make the same mistake twice. Um, so it's just that part of it. And it's a bit of betting on yourself. Because if you're racing that much and you can get consistent, you can make some money. And you become mentally better. That's right. A lot of this sport is mental. And and if you get on a roll, you get on a roll in the sport. You know, you you just, your decision made, the minute you start in this sport second-guessing yourself or you, say you did something wrong on Thursday night or, or Saturday night and you go back and you do the same thing next week and it's wrong, before you know it, you're getting down on yourself. And if you can do something on a on a Friday night, try it Saturday night and you're better, you're even better for next Friday night. Right. Um, and that's a mental thing. It's not just – and it all goes with, like you said, whether you're playing basketball or you're playing football or, or racing cars, the more you do it, um, the better you're going to be. Um, so it uh, – I, and I'm not telling people to go out and do that. I, I, I don't – I te- what I tell people is do what you can afford and do what you can have fun with because, unfortunately, I don't see anybody in this area following that dream that I had of going to the Daytona 500. Um, it's just it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough deal to, to even think that way in this day and age now um, that they're going to do that. So what they have to do is, is what they can afford, what they can have the most fun at, and, and go at the level they can. You know, if they can race three nights a week and they do it, hey, great. There you have it, part one, everybody. Mike Bruno here on 100 Week. Oh, that works. Yeah, I just thought of that. I like that. Why not? Because there's a part two coming in just a couple days, if you're listening to this as it comes out. If you're not, and it's been a couple days since it's come out, guess what? Great news, part two's already out. It's today. You can jump right to it. Once again, I want to thank all the sponsors, Barry Tile, Bushy's Generator Sales and Service, Pro Heat, sponsoring Storytime this week, and great job on Storytime again, Justin. Oh, thanks. I, that was a fun one for me. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sure you could tell. As Justin said at the beginning, merch for sale. All you got to do is uh, hit us up on any of the socials, Uncommon Deeds, on Twitter and Facebook, Uncommon Deeds Podcast on the Instagram. The Instagram. The Instagram. 
If you want to be a part of this crazy family and hear your business on our podcasts, you can send us an email, uncommonmediavt at gmail.com. So make sure, tune in for part two. It's a really good part two. Save some of the best stuff for last. Yeah. And this one deals with some of the heaviest subject matter we've ever had, for sure. Yeah. So it'll keep your attention for the full two parts. That is that is for sure. But that wraps up today's episode. You've been listening to Uncommon Deeds. This has been a production of Uncommon Media.